0: Blessed Good Friday. Pastor Wolfmiller here. This is what not the podcast. Thanks for listening. We've got three things happening in the in the show today. First is reflection on the three different kinds of suffering Jesus endures. This is so important to understand how the suffering and death of Jesus is an atoning work. It's not just the pain. It's not just the shame. There's something more going on that we don't that we don't know, and on purpose we don't know. So that's first. Then a a little reflection on the seven sermons Jesus preaches on the cross, the seven last words. Hopefully you get to hear your own pastor preach those today as well. Remember, this is just a supplement to the gifts that the Lord Jesus wants to give you at your own church from your own pastor. Uh, And speaking of that, by the way, if you don't have a church and a pastor, there's a Find a Church button on the webpage, wolfmuller.co find a church that's also how to send us an email then third segment a short reflection the simplest answer I can give on why Christians don't keep the Torah there's a lot of ways to take up that question but I I came up with I think the simplest question the simplest answer to that question uh, yesterday thinking about um Monday Thursday so hope you enjoy the show YouTube theologians, blessed Good Friday to you. This day indeed is truly good because of all that Jesus has done for us. 1,990 years ago, our Lord was um, brought before Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, then Herod, and back to Pilate, before he was handed over to the soldiers to be beaten, mocked, And crucified and all that he suffered he suffered for us to win for us life and salvation and the forgiveness of all of our sins we think first of all of the death of jesus and that's good and right we should but the bible also talks much about his suffering in fact it's an amazing thing that jesus can say it is finished the the winning of our salvation the work of atonement it is finished even before he breathes his last and dies. So that suffering of Jesus should occupy a good part of our own meditation and reflection. And that suffering is of three different types. I think this is the most helpful thing for us to reflect on on Good Friday. This is especially from Luther's I'll put this link in the description, Luther's um, commentary on Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first kind of suffering is the pain of the cross. This is normally what we think about on Good Friday when, when we're thinking about the cross and when someone's preaching the cross. We think of the nails and the whip and the scourging and the agony of that kind of death as your shoulders are out of joint and as the fluid fills your lungs and but the pain is not yet the full suffering of the cross. If it was, then the men crucified next to Jesus would have endured the same sort of thing. The, the pain or the suffering that the Gospels especially uh, highlight is the shame of the cross. This has to do with the, I mean, they're there gambling for his clothes, they spit on his face. That doesn't hurt. If someone spits on your face, it's not a painful thing, but it's a shameful thing. They mocked him. They blindfolded him and struck him and said, if you're the Messiah, prophesy. Who struck you? They bowed down and worshipped him. Hail, King of the Jews. I think the some of the worst shame must have been When they mocked Jesus on the cross, wagging their heads, and they said, he trusted in God, let God deliver him if he cares for him. Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. But the real third kind of suffering that we have to bring ourselves to, to understand what's going on in the cross, is the suffering of the wrath of God. This is the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the Isaiah 53 passage Where it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Or down in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. This is what we sing about in the hymn when we say the deepest stroke is the stroke that justice gave. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that Jesus, who's the perfect Lamb of God, who never broke God's law in any way, who was perfect. On this one, all the sins of the world are piled up so that God sees on him the guilt of us all. From Adam and Eve to the last person conceived before the Lord returns in glory. All the sins of humanity are piled onto him And for this he is forsaken. He endures the wrath of God that sinners deserve. And and, and while we can imagine something of the pain of the cross, and while we can imagine something of the shame of the cross, this forsakenness, this wrath, this stricken and smitten by God, we can't even imagine. But that's how the Lord wants it. He says, I'll take that, that wrath, that anger, that condemnation, that curse. I'll take that so that you can have my kindness, my friendship, my righteousness, my life. That's how the Lord wants it. Jesus, and this is the point of Good Friday and why it's good, Jesus would rather be there enduring the wrath of God than have you there enduring the wrath of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed Good Friday. Once we we understand the different kinds of suffering Jesus endures, and most especially that last, the wrath of God, the the curse, where, where, where Paul quotes Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree where Jesus is cursed, then then we understand what's going on. I think the next, this is my own idea, but the next best reflection on the cross and the crucifixion is to consider the seven words that Jesus preaches, the seven little sermons that Jesus gives uh, from the cross. We know the crucifixion lasted from nine until three. From nine until noon, um, Things seem normal, and then at noon the sun goes dark for three hours. There's of these seven sayings of Jesus, three are given to us by Luke, and three are given to us by John, and one is given to us by Matthew and Mark. In fact, if you just read Matthew and Mark, you would just think that Jesus said one thing from the cross Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, or Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Mark gives us the Aramaic. Matthew gives us the Hebrew. But we have, as we compare all four Gospels, we have uh, all of these seven sayings. It seems like three come at the beginning, three very quickly in the end, and one in the middle. There are three prayers, the first and the middle and the last. And those, the first and the last prayer are directed to God the Father, Father, forgive them, and then Father, into your hands. And the middle one is to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's important. I thought it might be nice just to spend a little time thinking about these seven sayings with you today uh, for our comfort and edification. So, first, the word of forgiveness. Luke 23, 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus sees all the evil and wickedness unfolding around him, and he prays for the absolution. He asks the Father not to be angry. And this is the office of the Son to plead on behalf of sinners. He even now is taking up his work as the defendant even as he has been accused and sentenced and condemned. This prayer, Father, forgive them, will be repeated by Stephen and Acts and many of the martyr stories that follow. That the ones who are being destroyed are looking with mercy on the people destroying them. And this kind of kindness is almost unbelievable. Jesus' blood is not crying out for vengeance but for forgiveness. It's not crying out for justice, but for mercy. Because that's the business of the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Then, we know that Mary is there, and the other Marys... And that John and Peter are watching from a distance, but that after a little while they draw closer, and that John is there by Mary and Jesus looks down, this is in the Gospel of John 19, I'll read you verse 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. One of the old ways that the theologians talked about sin was this in se curvatis, or in curvatus. se, that we are curved in on ourselves. And nothing curves us in on ourselves like pain. When we're hurting, we even physically will ball up and think about ourselves. But nothing can curl Jesus in on himself. Even there, as he's enduring the agony of the cross, he looks at Mary and cares for her and loves her and keeps the fourth commandment. And he looks at John and loves him and gives Mary into John's care some have noted that this is Jesus last obligation to his mother as her son to care for her and so at this point Jesus finishes all his vocational duties and now it's going to be the work of the the work of the Christ the one who's going to redeem the world there's an old tradition that Jesus was the only son of Mary and This text is the text that's used to support it most heartily, and most of the old Lutherans believed it. Luther himself, CFW Walter, and all those guys. Francis Pieper, the Lutheran dogmatician. Uh, I think it's probably a, a historical truth as well, but not something we can be dogmatic about. But when we see Jesus giving Mary to John, it's an indication that there weren't other brothers to take over. Some say, well, they weren't believing brothers. It would be soon if the if that um, if you follow that track. But either way, that's a historical point. But here we see Jesus finishing all of his his earthly duties, uh, so that he can so that he can do this establishing of his heavenly kingdom. The church, the 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 gathering of the righteous, forgiven sinners. There were two malefactors crucified on both sides of Jesus, one on his right, one on his left. They begin by being part of the mockery, part of the shame of the cross. But then one of them, paying attention to how Jesus endures all these indignities with quiet patience and faith in God, the Holy Spirit comes and converts him And he becomes a believer. He says to the other malefactor, Look, we are suffering justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is Luke 23, 43. Jesus says to him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It's a beautiful picture. A beautiful promise to him and to us, that Jesus is making the way to paradise. And that that very day he'd be there. This gives us, by the way, a little hint to what happens when Jesus dies. We know that his body and soul are torn apart unnaturally, which is what death is. That his body goes to the grave. That his soul goes to paradise to be with the Father and those gathered there before. Some do want to say that, well, that wasn't that day that he went there. So it should be say, I say unto you today, you will be with me in paradise at some point. But that today should stand in contrast to the agony and suffering that's happening. You're enduring all this affliction right now. But on this very day, you will be relieved. You will be at peace. You will rejoice. In my presence and my promises, a a life full of evil is consumed by the blood of Jesus and this man is absolved and is now our brother. We'll be in paradise one day with him too. (laughs) It's by grace we're saved through faith, not by works. This man teaches us that. There is nothing in which he can boast. Now at noon, the sun is darkened. And we want to we take that indication, that sign, as a mark that now God has turned away from Jesus that he is the Lamb of God who bears our sins and our sorrows, that wrath that we talked about earlier, that that is what is being endured for for these three hours of darkness. And at the end of those three hours of darkness, Jesus will cry out and pray the first line of Psalm 22. This is called the cry of dereliction. Mark 15 reads like this, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or Matthew 27, verse 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know. We know the forsakenness that Jesus is doing. We know why he's being forsaken. The last verse of 2 Corinthians 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or maybe most profoundly, from Isaiah 53, mentioned earlier, he was stricken by God, smitten, afflicted. It was from, it, It's God's active anger over sin that results in this forsakenness, this breaking up of the eternal experience that Jesus knew of the love of God And now for the first time, he's left alone. I think it's important that we note in this cry that Jesus changes who his prayer is to. He doesn't say, as he does in the first and last words, my father. He says, my God. There's those who want to spurn, or mock, or reject the doctrine of atonement, substitutionary atonement, which is the central teaching of the gospel, the idea that Jesus takes our place as our substitute under God's wrath. There's people who say that's just antiquated, old, pagan thinking, that it's child abuse, that the father would abuse the son to rescue the enemies of the family. But notice, Jesus does not say, my father. Why have you forsaken me? But my God, Jesus is enduring not the wrath of the Father, but the wrath of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He is receiving his own hatred for sin, his own despising of our evil and wickedness. That he is experiencing the... It's not like... The Father is the bad guy and the Son is the good guy. No, all of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are holy and righteous and indignant towards sin and evil, and that Jesus is even experiencing his own wrath. How? I I don't know. It's part of the mystery of the incarnation, that that everything that is holy is, is pressing in on Jesus to... Afflict him, and and he doesn't know why. I've written about this in a few places, and this is where most Lutheran pastors, by the way, dear listener, this is where most Lutheran pastors will press back and say, "Brian, you've you've gone too far. Why why do you say that Jesus doesn't know why he's suffering? He he's God. He knows everything. You can't say he doesn't know. Where's your proof? My proof is these words." My God, my God, why? Why? I take it as a real question. Jesus does not say, My God, my God, you have forsaken me. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does he know? He knows that he's never done anything wrong. He knows that he's never broken the law of God. He knows he's done nothing to deserve God's wrath and this kind of affliction and punishment. He knows also, that the Lord is merciful even to sinners. That the fathers trusted in God. They cried out and he delivered them. But he's now trusting in God and crying out and God is nowhere to be found. That's the, the whole of the psalm, at least the first part. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my groaning? Our fathers, they trusted you. They cried out to you. You delivered them. They look to you and you help them, but me, I'm a worm and not a man. The incarnation was accomplished in such a way that Jesus did not always and in every way use all of his divine attributes in his state of humiliation. There's times when the eternal one was tired, when he was hungry, when he was weak, when he most especially was mortal. And even when he was ignorant, we see this in the depth of his humility, that he, he assumes a kind of ignorance for the purpose that's set before him. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knows it's, there's no other possibility, but he, he loses that certainty for a while so that he can trust in God. And, and now, on the cross, in these hours of darkness, he loses the understanding of what's happening. Now I think this is important because if Jesus knew exactly what was going on, that the wrath that he was experiencing wasn't really for him, it was really the wrath that we would get, but he was just going to step in and take it for a little while, and then it would be over in a few hours, and then he would be dead and raised in a few days, and that his death would accomplish the salvation of the world. If he knew all of those things, in the midst of the suffering, he could buoy himself up and, and, and endure it. You can do it endure anything if you know that it's just for a few minutes. But all of those things that would bring him the slightest bit of comfort in the midst of the agony, the the, the knowledge that this was not for him but for, but for you, the knowledge that this is not forever but for a moment, the knowledge that this was not going to end in death but in life and resurrection, that every little bit of the future and of the purpose that would bring him comfort, is now hidden from him so that he doesn't even understand why it's happening. He knows the Father. He knows the grace of God towards sinners. He knows the history of God's mercy. And he sees in himself the exact opposite, all of God's wrath being poured out, and he cries out, Why? Why? And we know he's for, he, he's being forsaken so that we would not be. He, he prays Psalm 22 so that we can pray Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. this point, uh, the work is finished. The next word we get is from John nineteen twenty eight, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. At the beginning, they uh, tried to give Jesus, uh, wine mix, mixed with gall, like a It's like a medicine that's a, uh, oh, what does it do? It takes away the pain. Jesus refused to drink it. But now at the end, he, he will take something to drink. This fulfills Psalm 69. In my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. My old professor used to talk about how this indication, I thirst, meant that the spiritual affliction was over. The suffering of God's wrath had come to an end. And now he kind of comes back to himself, back to the pain of the cross, and realizes that he's thirsty, that Psalm 22, my palate's drier than a potsherd, my tongue sticks to my jaw. And he has a couple of more things he needs to say. So I thirst. Then John 19:30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. What's finished? The war that the devil and Adam and Eve started in the garden, that's what's finished. The enmity between heaven and earth, that's finished. The God being our enemy and our judge because of our sin, that's finished. The opening up the way of everlasting life so that so that all who trust in him should not perish but live forever, that's finished. There's peace with God now. Peace with God. The Greek here, uh, and people have made a lot out of this. To telestai would be what was stamped, you know, on the business document, paid in full. This is the idea: paid in full. This is, a, a, and here we have that redemption uh, indicated that that the price that is owed to justice has been accomplished. It's finished. Now, it's finished stands as a rebuke to all of our attempts to try to do something else. Can you imagine? Uh, Can you imagine a, a, a master painter who's in his studio and he finishes some great work and then he turns around and he says, it's finished. And we say, "Well, what could you put something more there and down in the corner?" <laughs> he says, "No, no, it's finished." So Jesus says to you about your salvation, "It's finished. Don't, don't go trying to add something to it. Don't go trying to fix something up. It is finished." Then finally, Luke 23, 46. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, that's probably that it is finished. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. Psalm 22, now Psalm 31. Into your hands I commend my spirit. There's a beautiful hymn that says, Jesus teaches how to die. And this is how. In fact, we pray this prayer every day when we wake up, when we go to bed. Into your hands I commit myself, my body and soul all and all things. It's into the hands of Jesus that we, we commend ourselves, that we throw ourselves. And so Jesus dies now with faith in his Father, knowing that he came from God, that he was going to God, he now gives up his spirit. He committed himself, this is how it says, how Peter writes about it, he commended himself to him who judges rightly. And, and, and while for the moments of darkness he did not know uh, the, the, the love of God, now he absolutely does. And he dies in the confidence that he's done the work that he was sent to do. Having said this, he gave up the ghost. He gave up the spirit. He breathed his last. Bowed his head and died. Even on the cross, Jesus is... for you, maybe especially on the cross, Jesus is for you. He's not wrapped up into his own pain and agony and self-pity. In these seven sermons, he's, he's got his, his mind and his affections on your life and salvation. Because dear friend, he, he loves you. God be praised for these seven sermons. Hmm. we got a question here from, uh, don't mention my name, who says simply, could you answer why Christians are not required to follow the Torah? This is a great question. This is a great good friday question actually i was thinking about this yesterday about about the best way to take up this question you you have verses like let no one judge you on your sabbath or your new moons or you you have uh, peter or paul talking about the dangers of circumcision if you seek to be made righteous by circumcision you're guilty of the whole law we have the whole question of uh the gentile requirements like that's the whole move of the council of jerusalem in acts 15 ephesians 2 is a key text where it talks about the middle wall of of separation being brought down and that's that wall between the jew and the gentile so we have all these texts that that talk about how the the church looks different in, than the old testament there's also a way to think about it when we just when we look at the law of the old testament especially the the, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and, and we see that there's a moral law, but then there's a ceremonial and a civil law, and that those ceremonial uh, religious laws and the, and the civil laws are bound by different things. As most especially the ceremonial law that it preaches Christ, and it, it preaches the Christ to come. This is what circumcision and the sacrifice, it's, it's preaching the coming death, the coming incarnation and sacrificial death of the Messiah. And so when Jesus has been born, circumcision is finished, and when when Jesus dies on the cross, the sacrifices are finished. But I think that the best way to, to answer this question simply is in the words of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus says, this is the blood of the New Testament, he is instituting a new way of of religious life, a new pattern of ceremonial living, a new liturgy. It's now not circumcision and sacrifice. It's now baptism and the supper. That old covenant is made old by the word of Jesus when he says new. And that's why we don't celebrate the Passover or the Day of Atonement or these Old Testament feasts because we have a new feast the body and blood of Jesus. This is why we don't uh, require circumcision, for example, on the eighth day for all the Christian boys. No, because we have a New Testament, especially in baptism, which is the parallel Paul makes in Colossians 2. So the reason why Christians are not required to follow the, the ceremony or the religious law of the Torah is because that word from Jesus, new, Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews reflects on this, chapters 8 and 9, especially um, thinking about the prophecy of the New Testament from Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, and the verses before and after. And this is especially reflected on in Hebrews 8. Listen to what Hebrews eight thirteen says. By saying a New Testament or New Covenant, he made the first one old. And when he treats it as old, and it is getting old, it's ready to vanish. So the reason why Christians don't live according to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament is because of that word that Jesus says, a New Testament I give to you. I hope that's helpful in its simplicity, Uh, and this also helps rescue us from the kind of Sabbatarian and, and kosher stuff that sort of creeps in, especially some people who consider themselves messianically Jewish. This is a we we gotta really lean into what Jesus means here when he says new, 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 new. All right. Hope that helps. God be praised. God be praised for his mercy and kindness to us. That he he bears the curse for my soul. For your life. If you have questions wolfmuller.co slash contact you know the best thing to do make sure you're signed up for the whatnot wednesday whatnot it's a free newsletter i send out mostly on wednesdays and now every once in a while other times and you can you can find that at wolfmuller.co slash wednesday it's free it's also you can pay for it for five bucks and you don't get anything extra it's just helpful you want to donate more than five bucks there's even a support button on the web page but I we're fine although although i've got some ideas it's a growing growing list of ideas including trying to figure out how to how to do a bible worldwide bible classes in all different languages that's the idea i've been thinking about couldn't sleep a couple yeah i just anyway your support goes to help ideas like that so thanks for your support but hopefully if you don't you know Take care of your family and your first church your church first, and then if you got some left over. I think that's all. I really do hope that you get to hear your pastor preach on the love of Christ tonight. And preach on the life of Christ on Sunday. What a wonderful day. What a wonderful week. Uh, thanks again for being part of it with me. God's peace be with you.